the room at the end of the world. In the various groups that I've been a part of throughout my life, a list which consists of a college-level economics class, Alcoholics Anonymous, a book club dedicated to an author I particularly enjoy, Narcotics Anonymous, and an amateur photography club, among others. A common practice on the first day, let it be noted that one day was the farthest extent of my involvement with the preponderance of the groups to which I have belonged, is to go around the church basement or the school gymnasium or the shelter at the local park and have each member introduce themselves by stating an, quote, interesting fact about themselves. I suspect that this particular little exercise has played no small part over the years in forming my absolute loathing of all things involving groups and group activities. But alas, the human condition is full of paradoxes, and I am no exception. I crave patterns as a baby craves its mother's breast, while simultaneously feeling as if those same patterns and routines and familiarities are slowly killing me. So from time to time I convince myself that it is in my best interest to break those habits and force myself into some group activity or another. There is a rush of dopamine that accompanies the doing of something new, of something that I did not want to do, whether or not that thing proves to be of any utility. The pain means it's working, the discomfort means I'm growing. I convince myself of this at least. I find that the last ten years of my life, when I dig beneath the surface memories, have consisted primarily of these false starts, accomplishing nothing but a fleeting and empty feeling of accomplishment. Because of my deep distaste for the first-day formalities of groups, over the years I have fashioned stock answers to some of the more common questions that one faces in the introduction process. Of course I find myself interesting, if that is the question, are you an interesting person, as I suspect most people find themselves of particular interest. But if asked to support this claim with even a modicum of evidence, I find myself completely lacking for something to talk about. There is always someone in the room who passes this test with flying colors. They manage to impress the whole group with what an outwardly fascinating person they are in the space of a few sentences. I have never been this person. I used to instinctively hate these people. I would sit in my seat stewing in quiet vitriol as everyone laughed at their hilarious anecdotes. And the faster my mind tried to come up with something that could compete, the more blank it became. What an embarrassment for all the eyes of the group to arrive on myself and I have literally nothing of interest to say. Even worse when the leader of the discussion presses you for an answer, no matter how gentle or congenial their tone. To relieve myself of the burden of having to think on my feet, I have established the road habit of telling people that I was in the Boy Scouts for three years as a child. It's the perfect interesting fact, and I should know. I spent hours at home pondering the situation, to say nothing of the deeper issue that I have such a difficult time finding anything interesting about myself, a fact which I am acutely aware of and spend decidedly less time pondering. For one, it's true. On the off chance that I am asked to speak more on my time in the Boy Scouts, either by the group leader or by some inquisitive peer after the meeting, I don't have to worry about digging deeper into a lie. But perhaps more importantly, as far as interesting facts go, it manages to cross the interesting threshold while being so completely anodyne that almost no one does ask any further about it, which is just as I would prefer it. And, as all interesting facts should, it elicits a small amount of laughter when prefaced properly, if you can believe it, etc. As, to look at me, one would not take me for the type of person who can build a fire or row a canoe across the lake or tie a dozen different varieties of knots. In fact, I cannot do any of those things, not that I've tried recently. I don't remember much at all about my time in the Boy Scouts, save for one particular incident, which now weighs heavily on my soul. 
It was October of my third and final year in the Boy Scouts, and our troop was spending a weekend at a place called Eagle Cave in rural northwestern Wisconsin. I was not the most popular kid in the troop, but I had my friends, and thus was not the lowest boy in the pecking order of the group, not the distinctive outcast, as it were. This honor belonged to a boy named Theodore, a quiet boy with blonde hair, small for our age, and sporting a large growth on his neck. It was positioned so, and of such a size, that it couldn't be hidden as a large indistinct lump under any type of shirt. He called it his bump, and said it was unsightly, because that was how his parents described it. There were about a dozen boys in the troop at any given time. If not for Theodore, it very well could have been me that the group scorned and left out of conversations, or made whispered plans to abandon on hikes through the woods. But as it stood, he was there, for all of my time with the troop, enduring the mistreatment and cruel laughter without so much as a sour word. He didn't smile much either, he never seemed to be having much fun, but he kept showing up. I engaged him as much as I thought I could get away with without drawing the ire of the other boys, but never enough to ask him why he kept showing up without coming across like I was mocking him. I heard my parents talking about it one night, and they concluded that Theodore's parents were forcing him to participate. We arrived on Friday night, a few hours later than we were scheduled to. It was raining when we pulled into the parking lot, and the small wooden buildings that housed the front desk and gift shop were dark, but there was an old man with a long white beard waiting on the porch. He waved at our van as we pulled in and introduced himself to Justin's dad, Rick, the scoutmaster leading the trip. We all clambered out and grabbed our bags and then followed Rick down a short dirt path to the other side of the compound, where the cabins were located. He unlocked one and pointed out where everything was before moving on to unlock the rest of the cabins. There were two bunk beds, four beds per cabin. Rick and Marv, Cole's dad, would be sleeping in this one with Justin and Cole. The rest of us were free to divide ourselves up and bunk in one of the remaining cabins. I managed to get a hold of Mason, a boy I would have considered a friend at the time, before anyone else could grab him and leave me without a partner. Not that a partner was necessary, but I wanted to avoid having to straggle from cabin to cabin looking for a single open bunk, or impose myself from the outside at an already happy group of cabin mates. Our cabin ended up sleeping myself, Mason, a boy named Ryan, who was probably Mason's best friend in the group, and Theodore. I no longer had the strongest claim to Mason, and thus felt pushed to the fringes, and paired psychically with Theodore by default. That's not to say that we spoke much, we didn't. Mason and Ryan talked and messed around for a bit, burning off the energy they'd stored up sitting in a van for four hours. I sat on my bed while they did this, a top bunk, laughing when appropriate but never interjecting much, trying to feel out how much I could include myself without coming across as an unwelcome interloper. I felt Theodore's energy on the bunk below me, a constant presence, even though, and perhaps because, he didn't say anything all night. Soon enough, Ryan got up and turned out the lights. This reinvigorated everyone for a few minutes, and the carousing began anew, but eventually, the room grew quiet. As I lay in the dark, I remembered a conversation I'd heard my parents having the week before as they signed my permission slip to attend this trip. My mom had heard of Eagle Cave before. It had been in the news. Earlier that summer, a child had gone missing from the town of Eagle Cave, a few miles down the road from the cave itself. This was not the first kid to disappear from Eagle Cave, either. A girl walking to school about five years ago, never seen again. A boy playing in the woods a few years before that. There one minute, gone the next. Police orchestrated searches each time, the whole town coming out to aid in the effort, their compassion and determinedness mixing with fear and paranoia, combing the woods for miles around but they never found any bodies. 
The story had made me uneasy when I first heard it. I'd meant to tell it to some of the other boys in the van right up, put them in the mood and earn myself some credibility amongst the group. Now seemed the next best time, in a dark and quiet cabin tucked away in the woods, though as far as I could hear, everyone was asleep, so we would have to wait for another opportunity. As I sat there thinking about all of this, I became aware of the fact that, while Mason and Ryan were asleep across the small room, Theodore was still very much awake. I couldn't see or hear anything from him in the darkness. It was simply a feeling I had that I knew to be true. The rain had ceased by the time I woke up in the morning, leaving the world outside a damp brown mess, all mud and scattered puddles on a blanket of wet leaves. Mason and Ryan were still asleep. Theodore was nowhere to be found. I dressed myself and stepped outside. It was a warm morning for October. The air felt clear and sharp in my lungs. The sun had already begun to burn away the previous night's moisture, beams of light falling through the mists that rose between the soaked tree trunks. I wandered around the campground for a while. Other boys gradually began to trickle out of their cabins, eventually congregating together. It was perfectly natural for me to join them. Nobody would look at me sideways, and so I did. Eventually, Rick and Marv emerged from their cabin, and as they began to rally us for the beginning of the day's official activities, Theodore appeared out of the forest and joined the group seamlessly. I'm not sure anyone else but myself noticed. The morning consisted of a hike through the woods to a nearby lake, some swimming, and a hike back to the campground where we ate lunch. After we finished eating, we were met by the old man with the beard, who made a formal introduction of himself to the entire group as Mr. Alphonse. We were instructed to take all of our belongings as we would be sleeping in the cave that night. Mr. Alphonse led us back past the gift shop and down a paved path, which soon became a series of steep switchbacks. The mouth of the cave waited for us at the bottom, a large rocky hole in the side of the hill on which the campground sat. An excited murmur ran through the troop as we stepped through the yawning mouth into the cave. The air inside was cool. We descended down a series of steps through a cramped tunnel. The first room we entered was wide, perhaps the size of a school cafeteria, the ceiling low but not so low that any of the adults needed to adjust their posture. Boys ran off in every direction to explore, though the entry room itself was largely featureless. Mr. Alphonse warned us to be careful as the surfaces were slick. His warning was only half heard, but then he only seemed to half care. This would be our sleeping quarters, and Rick instructed us to stake out a space for ourselves now. We did so, everyone buzzing with the excitement of being underground, forming into giddy little pairs and triplets eager to bed down in close proximity to one another in anticipation of the future darkness. The simple unspoken fact, hanging heavy in the damp gloom, was that there was a feeling of danger to sleeping here, underground. Nobody wanted to find themselves alone come nightfall, come the dark, wrapped in their sleeping bag in some isolated corner of the cave. I was no exception. Mr. Alphonse gave us a brief tour deeper into the cave, a series of winding hallways and stairways periodically interrupted by larger rooms, though none approached the size of the initial entryway. A few times we passed through a stretch that required us all to duck down or turn ourselves sideways to squeeze through, and everyone had a good laugh at watching Rick and Marv navigate these sections. The path itself was paved and followed closely by a series of caged light bulbs along the ground. The upward shadows cast by the rock formations gave the place a subtly sinister atmosphere. At the farthest reach of the tour, Mr. Alphonse turned to us and, with macabre intonation, asked us if we wanted to, quote, know the darkness of the grave. His words were so odd that I can remember them even now. His hand rested on a metal fuse box on the wall. A moment later, 
The switch was thrown, and the cave was plunged into absolute darkness. One of the boys screamed. Another laughed. Odd exclamations spread throughout the troop. Then, Mr. Alphonse's voice, seemingly humming with an even deeper resonance now, implored us to imagine being lost down here without a light. The group grew silent. He told us the story of a man who had lost his way exploring the cave back in the 1800s, before the town that bore the cave's namesake had been founded. His oil lantern had run dry, and he found himself wandering hopelessly for hours, his cries for help met only by their own echo. Finally, he simply sat down and waited for someone to find him. Soon, he began to hear footsteps, growing nearer by the minute. He called out, but again received no reply. The footsteps continued for hours, but nobody ever arrived. He was driven nearly to madness by the footsteps, only to realize, upon being rescued by his wife a full day later, that the footsteps he'd been hearing were only the beating of his own heart. His family said that he was never the same after that day. The things he'd heard during that long day sitting in the cave had changed his mind permanently, would never leave him as long as he drew breath. At this, Mr. Alphonse flipped the switch back on. We all shielded our eyes, which had been trying hopelessly to adjust to a darkness the likes of which they'd never known. The tour concluded. Rick now gave us permission to explore the cave for the rest of the afternoon, provided we stuck with groups of at least three. And so we did, and it was a fine afternoon of exploring, though in all the commotion and fun I could never shake entirely the story of the lost man from my mind. A few hours later, Mr. Alphonse came back down into the cave to fetch us. Upon returning to the surface, I was surprised to find that the sun had already begun to set. The air had cooled significantly since we'd gone underground, but the breeze felt good, blood rushing to the height of my cheeks and the edge of my ears. The woods were aglow with a golden autumnal light. Leaves fluttered listlessly in the wind and skittered across the gravel. Mr. Alphonse led us back up the trail to the parking lot, and from there to a large building near the gift shop. Every October, some of the employees and myself, along with a few people from town, like to put on a little haunted house, he explained. It's not much, but we work hard on it, and it's a lot of fun. You guys are more than welcome to walk through if you'd like. There were no cars in the parking lot besides our van and what I presumed to be Mr. Alphonse's, and I wondered how much time the employees spent in the little haunted house, all made out in costume, waiting for what couldn't have been more than a handful of guests to trickle through each night. By the time I tuned in to what the rest of the troop was discussing, the decision had been made. We would take a walk through the haunted house. A pair of jack-o'-lanterns guarded either side of the entrance, and upon entering the building, we were greeted with an almost overpowering smell of mold. As my eyes adjusted, I could see a smattering of store-bought Halloween decorations arranged in the facade of a laboratory. A CD of eerie sound effects played on repeat, chains rattling, cauldrons bubbling. The second room was made up as a dungeon. I didn't see the first employee until the fifth room, and he was hidden so well amongst the shadows and decor that only by chance did I notice his presence. This caused me to wonder if there had been employees in the previous rooms as well. He did not leap out at me, shout, or attempt to startle me in any way. He merely watched intently as I passed through, his eyes bored and luminescent in the darkness. This story repeated itself with each subsequent employee that I spied, some of them moving lethargically about in the corners, and some, apparently, completely unaware of our presence. But towards the end I did notice a peculiar thing, which is that all of them had some sort of physical deformity. There was a woman with a hunchback, a man with one eye, a man with an engorged arm and a woman with a club foot, 
I thought these at first to be merely tasteless bits of costuming, but they were too real looking, the rest of the house too cheaply decorated for this to be the case. The employees themselves bore no makeup, no indication that they might have been there to scare us, their only unifying and distinguishing feature being these physical abnormalities. The house ended as uneventfully as it had begun, many of the boys quietly complaining amongst themselves what a disappointment the whole thing had been, a few of them pointing out how strange the employees were. Once the whole troop had exited the house, we made our way around the back of the gift shop, where there were several girls and some picnic tables. Rick was finishing the first round of hamburgers as we arrived. It was dark out by the time we returned to the cave. We ran around a bit more, keeping largely to those rooms in the immediate vicinity of the main hall. After an hour, Rick's voice echoed throughout the cave, telling us that it was lights out. We returned to our sleeping bags, and a minute later, Rick pulled the red lever by the door, and the cave went black. A momentary giddiness spread among the boys, but Rick shone his flashlight into the crowd, a gesture that we all understood to mean that we were expected to be quiet now, and sleep. Rick returned to his sleeping bag and turned off his flashlight. The darkness was so complete that it startled me out of the sleepy half-consciousness I'd fallen into. So thick that it felt material, like I could reach out and touch the impossibly heavy fabric that had been thrown over my eyes, like there was a weight boring down on my chest. But this darkness, so utterly total as it was, enveloped me, and before I knew what was happening, ushered me off to sleep. I awoke sometime later in the night, gasping. For a terrifying moment, I forgot where I was. It was as dark when I opened my eyes as it was when they were closed. There were hushed voices, whispering and giggling somewhere in the near distance. It sounded like several boys. Whatever was happening, I wanted to be involved. I rummaged blindly through my bag and found my flashlight. I covered my bulb with my palm and flipped the switch, giving myself just enough light to orient myself and navigate out of the main hall without stepping on anyone. The voices were moving, farther away now, and I followed. The voices were moving, farther away now, and I followed. I hadn't gone far when I heard footsteps behind me. Fearing that it could be Rick, or worse, I turned around. It was Theodore, his flashlight tucked under his shirt, the white cotton tented over his hand and glowing. It cast another worldly light over his face. Hey, he whispered. Hey, I whispered back. I heard some people going into the cave. He asked what they were doing. I told him I didn't know. He then asked what I was doing. I told him I also didn't know. You want to scare them? He asked. I was taken aback. I was sure I'd never heard him say so many words at once. But a part of me did want to scare them, and so I nodded, and we headed off in pursuit of the voices. It was difficult to track them. Every little sound echoed endlessly through the winding hallways. We followed them deeper and deeper into the cave, backtracking to the last fork in the path whenever we found them growing more distant, seeming slowly to gain on them. They grew louder, but not so loud that I could make out any of what they were saying. After 10 or 20 minutes of tracking them, we stumbled into a room that I didn't recognize. The voices sounded very close here, like they were in the next room over. We covered our flashlights again and found a small crevice in the cave wall. It wasn't part of the main path, but it looked big enough to squeeze through if we crawled. The voices were gone entirely now, but we were so sure that they were just through the crevice that we crawled through. I went first. Theodore came right behind me. As I was almost out, I heard Theodore. Shit. His flashlight had gone out. I told him it was okay because we still had mine. I crawled forward the rest of the way. The hallway we emerged into wasn't much larger. We could stand, but we had to duck our heads and walk sideways. As we walked, the cave expanded, 
until we could stand upright, and it continued to widen until we found ourselves in a gently curving hallway large enough to drive a semi-truck through. We followed this for another five minutes or so until the cave abruptly dead-ended. The wall face was completely flat, a jarring sight in a cave so full of rough surfaces and odd angles. But as I ran my flashlight over the wall, my blood froze. Set in the middle of the wall, deep in the depths of the cave, was a door. A simple white door with dirty brass hinges and handle. As I moved closer, I noticed faint red markings covering the surface of the door. Tally marks, each no bigger than my finger. There was a slightly more distinct design, hand emblazoned in black in the center of the door, just above my head. A single feather, drawn inside of an equilateral triangle. Theodore's whispered voice behind me. Without thinking, I reached out for the doorknob. I didn't want to open it, but a part of me wanted to know if I could. Theodore grabbed my hand before I could find out. We've got to get back or we're going to get in trouble, he said. He was right. I turned to go, but as I did, I heard a sound from behind the door. A man moaning, followed by hoarse, dry laughter. Theodore grabbed my arm and we took off running as quietly as we could, the beam of my flashlight swinging wildly up and down the cave walls. I tripped on something and my momentum carried me forward, sliding across the cave floor. My flashlight bounced away, flickered, and before it could come to a stop, died. I heard it stop in the darkness. My mind immediately went to the story of that man sitting in the cave with the dead lantern. I pushed myself to my feet, the heels of my palms dragged raw, and groped desperately for the flashlight. I found it eventually, but it was broken. Theodore pushed me on anyways. Soon, the cave began to narrow. We squeezed through as fast as our feet would carry us, and once more I was the first one to go through when the time came to crawl on our stomachs. With solid rocks surrounding me on all sides, I could hear nothing save for my own raspy breathing. It felt like a much longer crawl this time, but eventually I emerged, picked myself up, and waited for Theodore to come out behind me. He never did. I waited and waited, even when far too much time had passed. I told myself that he had gotten momentarily stuck, that he'd come crawling out at any second. I got down on my hands and knees and tried to look for him, but it was no use. I couldn't have seen him even if his nose was an inch from mine. The thoughts sent a chill through my body and sent me recoiling backwards. Anything could be here with me in the dark. I didn't dare speak above a whisper when I called out for him. There was no answer. Eventually. I decided that it was better to risk trouble with Rick and the troop than to leave Theodore God knows where, so I began to make my way back to the main hall to wake people and bring help. I stumbled blindly forward, one cautious step at a time, hands outstretched, feeling my way along, but it wasn't long before I realized that I was hopelessly lost. I sat down, exhausted. It was so quiet that I could hear the blood pulsing in my ears. Mr. Alphonse's words came back to me. Do you want to know the darkness of the grave? There were no sounds outside of my body. It was as if I were sitting in a void, complete nothingness, conscious within my own annihilation. What if this never ended? What if I was suspended here for eternity? What if I died here? What if I didn't? I began to weep. I have never cried like that before or since. Then, without thinking, I began to scream for help. My voice was raspy and raw. The sound of it echoed back scared me. It wasn't a sound I realized I was capable of making. Before long, I heard a stampede of sneakers on granite. A few minutes later, flashlight beams. I was rescued. Rick took me by the shoulders and made sure I wasn't hurt. He was angry, scared. 
I smarted out everything that had happened from the time I woke up to Theodore, but I didn't mention the door. Something told me that if I didn't mention the door, whatever was on the other side of it couldn't hurt me. If I didn't talk about it, it wouldn't be real. I told them only that Theodore and I had crawled through a tight space and on our way back I had lost him. Everyone was awake now, and we quickly packed our things and shuffled out of the cave. Rick ordered us to stay put and ran back to Mr. Alfonso's cabin. The night air felt good on my face. I breathed in deeply, taking as much into my lungs as I could manage. The feeling of the breeze on my skin gave me goosebumps and made my hair stand on end. I closed my eyes and focused on breathing, focused on the sounds of the outside world. When I opened my eyes, my head was tilted back and I was looking up at the tops of the trees, branches swaying in the wind. I was looking at the night sky, but as I gazed upward, I began to realize that the sky looked different. It appeared somehow closer. The stars, not their usual pinpricks of light, but now burning, alive. Molten points of white light, edges subtly flickering. As I watched the sky, I felt somewhere deep in my chest that I was being watched back. Marv emerged from the cave, and I realized then that he had not been with the group that found me. He joined the rest of the troop without a word, and a moment later Rick returned with Mr. Alphonse in tow. The lights were thrown on. The search began immediately. The police arrived a few minutes later, and we searched through the night, but to no avail. It rained again the next day, and Rick drove us home in the van. He returned that night to continue searching for Theodore. In total, the search lasted two weeks, though Theodore's parents would drive up every weekend for months afterward. They combed the woods, they scoured the cave, but no trace of Theodore was ever found. The day before Christmas, Marv filled his jacket and pants pockets with rocks, picked up a still larger rock, and walked into Lake Superior. His body washed up on the beach sometime later, and was found that May by a young couple kayaking near the shore. My father died a month ago, at the time of my writing this. He was a consummate alcoholic, divorced from my mother for many years, and living on his own. We did not have anything resembling an even amicable father-son relationship, and yet in the wake of his death and subsequent funeral, I found myself, at times, completely and hopelessly distraught. Waves of grief and fits of weeping would wash over me at the most unexpected and often inconvenient moments. I've considered that this outburst of despair is precisely due to the fact that I never had a meaningful relationship with him, and now I never will. As it stands, I have no definite answers on this front, but the death of my father and subsequent emotional distress play a central role in this narrative, as it drove me to seek out another one of those formal group activities which now and then have plagued my adult life. A week had passed since the funeral, and I was still breaking down in tears several times a day, so I decided to attend a support group. I didn't speak during the first session, but afterwards I was approached by another man from the group as I was refilling my paper cup with coffee. He was balding, perhaps in his 40s. He introduced himself as Brian and asked if I wanted to get a drink. I thought about it for a moment and decided this was, like the group itself, another one of those things that I should make myself do for my own good. My house and the quiet solitude that it offered would still be waiting for me when it was over. We went to a bar a few minutes from the school where the support group met. It was just after 10 and a weeknight, so only a handful of the most committed and perpetually available drinkers littered the stools and booths when we arrived. We each ordered a beer and sat at the bar conversing. Brian told me that he'd been coming to these support group meetings for a few months now. Some nights were more helpful than others, according to him. I told him that I didn't find tonight particularly helpful. Stick with it, he said, but if it's not for you, then it's not for you. 
I was relieved that he was not here to evangelize me. Or perhaps he was and was just better at it than I gave him credit for. I'll probably give it a few more chances, I said. Something's got to work. Sometimes it feels like a moving target, he said. I'm just glad they didn't do a bunch of two truths and a lie bullshit at the top. Yeah, God, that was my biggest fear coming to something like this initially. Really? I asked. He laughed. Yeah, I hate that shit with a passion. I wanted to dismiss him to continue holding myself above everyone else who attended the group, but I was warming to him despite myself. What works for you when the group doesn't, I asked. He made a low grunting noise and took a sip from his beer, mulling over my question. It depends on the day, I guess. He thought about it some more. Do you believe in God? I told him that I did not. Yeah, me neither. Okay. Well, if it's any consolation, your dad isn't sad that he's dead. There's nothing left of him to feel anything. That's just left for us. Yes, I'm aware. That's what I'm trying to get a grip on. Fair enough. Are you afraid of death? Now it was my turn to think. Yeah, maybe that's part of why I'm reacting so strongly to this. I'm terrified of it. He nodded and stared into what was left of his drink. Have you ever thought it would be a great relief to get it over with? No, I said. I never thought of that. The lights in the bar came up. My apartment is a two-minute walk from here. I've got some more beer there if you want to keep talking, said Brian. His apartment was plain, sparsely furnished, but clean. I sat on the couch in the living room and he brought me a beer from the kitchen. Then he opened a drawer in the coffee table and produced a small baggie of marijuana and a bowl. He looked at me questioningly and I nodded. When we were finished, Brian disappeared down the hallway and reappeared a few seconds later with a small brown envelope in his hand. He handed it to me. There was a familiar logo in the wax seal that I couldn't place in my memory. That has helped me more than anything else has. More than the group, even. I just thought I'd give it to you as an option. I thanked him and placed the envelope in my coat pocket. There was a lull in the conversation. I leaned back on the couch and tried not to worry about it too much, to just enjoy the high. But then Brian looked at me and he sat next to me on the couch and said something. I cannot remember what exactly he said. And in retrospect, I'm sure it was completely innocent. But in that moment, I became convinced that Brian was trying to sleep with me. Not wanting to offend him, I made up some excuse about having to go home, thanked him for everything, grabbed my coat and left. Upon arriving home, I fell asleep almost immediately and forgot all about the brown envelope. I made up my mind that I would return to the support group at least for a few more weeks. I spent the day of the next meeting dreading seeing Brian. I worried that I'd offended him or made a horrible first impression for myself in leaving his apartment so hastily. But to my relief and also... I realized in the moment, my disappointment, Brian was not at the meeting that night. When he failed to show up for the next meeting as well, I decided to check on him and make sure he was alright. New friends have historically been difficult to come by in my adult life, and I wanted to make sure I didn't lose out on one without doing my due diligence. Brian's apartment door was unlocked when I arrived. I knew as soon as I stepped inside that something was wrong. The smell was indescribable. I called out for Brian, but nobody answered. Following the smell, I stepped into the kitchen. There was smoke rising out of the oven. I quickly turned it off and swung open the door. A blast of heat and smoke hit me in the face. There was Brian, knees and hands. I slammed the door shut and retched. I ran into the living room to catch my breath. 
there was a note on the coffee table. To my horror, it was addressed to me. I'm sorry that you found me in this state. The great paradox of human consciousness has finally caught up to me, I suppose, and now I am truly free. Remember that non-existence is just through the door, and all that's left to do is step through. Sometime during the next week, I can't remember exactly what day it was, I was struck by the memory of the brown envelope. I hadn't touched the coat I'd been wearing that night since I haphazardly threw it on my bedroom floor, and I fished the envelope out of the pocket. Immediately, I recognized the logo on the seal. I knew what was going to be in the envelope before I opened it. You are cordially invited to Eagle Cave to fulfill your purpose and save the human race. The card was off-white, embossed with a gold border. Memories of the Boy Scouts in Eagle Cave rushed back, the feather inside of the triangle. I made arrangements with my job and told them I would not be in for the rest of the week. The next morning, I began driving north and arrived in the town of Eagle Cave sometime after lunch. I ate at a small diner there and asked the waitress for directions to the cave. She told me how to get there, but informed me that it was closed. I inquired as to how long this had been the case. Oh, a few years now, I think. The owner went bankrupt and some company came in and bought it, but they haven't done anything with it, so it's just sitting there, empty. I thanked her for the food and the information, paid my bill and left. A few minutes later, I arrived at Eagle Cave. The compound looked exactly as I remembered it, only smaller. I find that this is often the case when I visit places from my youth as an adult. Things that seemed vast and dizzyingly full of dark corners to explore were now utterly knowable, staggeringly mundane. The lack of foliage this time of year contributed to this as well. Standing by the gift shop, I could see all the way down the trail to the campgrounds on the other side of the woods that had seemed so far away as a child. The paint on the cabins was peeling a bit more, the parking lot more overgrown with weeds. The inside of the gift shop sat dark and empty, plaster and broken glass littering the floor. The aura of the compound felt threatening, but I reasoned that this was only my own projection, my own memories clouding the reality of the place. I parked my car and headed down the trail to the mouth of the cave and found it blocked with a section of chain-link construction fence. It was more of a symbolic barrier, though, as I had very little issue in pulling back one end and squeezing through the gap and into the cave. Once inside, I tried the light switch, but as I suspected, the power had long ago been shut off. I would have to use my flashlight. The inside of the cave had changed even less than the outside, to my memory. I navigated back into the bowels of the system and then began my search for the low pass that Theodore and I had crawled through so many years earlier. I was drawn forward, compelled by some force I could barely sense, let alone comprehend, and worked on a level of my brain somewhere below consciousness, mixed in with the need to eat and breathe and fuck was the urge to press on and find this door. My light swept over something strange on the cave wall, and then upon closer inspection I discovered that carved into the rock was the image of a feather inside of a triangle, the same one I'd seen in the brown envelope. Just beneath it was a passageway, barely high enough to crawl through, and so I crawled. When I could stand again, I found the air on this side of the passage stale and sour. It was hard to breathe here. I made my way forward, the tunnel widened, and then I came, once more, to the end of the cave. 
The door that now stood before me had haunted my feverish panicked nightmares for years. Before it even opened, I knew what I would see inside. The door opened. I wanted to run, but of course I could not. I was always meant to be here. I could drive home, throw the envelope away, but I knew that I would be pulled back. That someday soon, I would once again be standing in front of this door. No matter what I did, it always ended with me stepping through this door. Pale, blinding light poured out of the crack in the door, tinged a sickly shade of green. The door opened further and I could see rows of fluorescent bulbs tucked neatly into the ceiling. The door opened more and I could see the man on the other side, his only hand on the doorknob. He was tall, his head nearly grazing the top of the doorframe. He stared down at me with expressionless eyes. There were others behind him in the room. I recognized them at once as the employees from the haunted house. They were milling about, all turns towards the open door to look at me. The man with one hand nodded, and I entered. He closed the door behind me. The room I stepped into was not much to look at. Four white walls, dirty tile floor, some flimsy mass-produced plastic chairs lined up against the walls. The employees stepped aside and allowed me to move through the room with ease. Nobody spoke a word. A thought entered my head. I do not know where it came from. But the thought was that these people were my friends, and I looked into their eyes and saw that they were. The center of the room cleared, and I saw a man with greasy blonde hair and a lump on his neck sitting in a chair. He arose and took me by the hand and led me to an adjacent room. It looked much like the room we just left, but it was empty save for a single folding metal chair and a plain glass bowl on the floor next to it. He closed the door behind us and gestured for me to sit in the chair. I did. Without a word, he unzipped my pants and pulled them down around my ankles. The chair was cold against my bare skin. His sallow jowls were wrinkled and pockmarked, covered in patches of short, pale hairs that scratched at the inside of my thighs. I couldn't move my arms, but my brain was functioning on such a low frequency that I couldn't tell if they didn't work or if I didn't want them to work. The static rose up along my spine and engulfed my brain. My face buzzed in ecstasy. And then the blonde man pushed himself back. He spat something into the glass bowl, and it landed in a small, viscous black puddle. The black liquid had a barely perceptible rainbow sheen in the buzzing fluorescent light. The blonde man climbed to his feet and opened the door, ushering me back into the first room. There, the man with one hand held the main door open for me and let me back into the cave. The door was closed behind me, and as I heard it latch, the fog lifted from my brain. My thoughts returned to the fore. My own inner monologue no longer sounded as if it were underwater and far away. I found my way out of the cave. I found my way back to my car, and I found my way back home without incident. There is nobody left to mourn me when I finish writing this and do what I'm going to do. At least nobody that I know of. I write this note simply as a way of explaining what happened and what led me to this, or any interested parties. My hope is that in writing my own story, I can avoid any conjecture from strangers or long-lost acquaintances claiming to know me better than they actually do. Or did. The simple fact is that the illusion has been lifted for me, and I understand now what must be done. We've been lied to, an impossible paradox forced upon us, and the only way to square the circle is to simply opt out. It is but one small part in the project to rescue the human race. But it is my part, 
and I go to it knowing that it is the most noble thing I will ever do.